Shalom and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. In today's episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the ongoing escalation of violence in the West Bank and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict generally with two terrific and returning guests, Israel Policy Forum's very own Israel Fellow, Nimrod Novik, who for many years was a senior advisor to the late Shimon Peres, as well as Ibrahim Dalalsheh, the head of the Horizon Center think tank in Ramallah and a longtime advisor at the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem. There's a lot to talk about with regard to Palestinian and security affairs. And for more, do check out the IPF webinar that was recorded this week with our old friend Amos Harel from Haaretz, which is available on the Israel Policy Forum YouTube page. But first, a few thoughts from me on the domestic political crisis in Israel. So we're recording this on Wednesday evening, near the end of what was termed here a day of national disruption called by the protest movement against the Netanyahu government's planned judicial overhaul slash revolution. And it was really a day of disruption here. All across Israel, protesters took to the streets and highways, nearly all with blue and white flags in hand, and made their voices heard. Here in Tel Aviv, tens of thousands marched up Dizengoff Street and down to the Ayalon Highway on a weekday morning and well into the afternoon, closing streets and stopping traffic. The police eventually stopped the march right before it reached the actual highway, deploying barricades and trucks and even mounted riot police and stun grenades. Dozens were arrested. 11 people were injured. Uh, Your trusty correspondent was weaving and dodging stun grenades as well. Uh, It's been a long time since that level of force has been used in Tel Aviv. Usually it's saved for shall we say, other locales in Israel and other demographics in Israel. But honestly, being in the middle of it, it did look at one point like the police would lose control just based on the sheer mass of people. And there were a lot of people out on the streets, again, on a weekday, taking off work. But ultimately, the police were dealing not with anarchists or lawbreakers or even rock throwers, like Prime Minister Netanyahu and National Security Minister Ben-Gvir would have people believe, but rather peaceful citizens who are very, very concerned about the future of their country. We're talking about retired Air Force pilots and high-tech workers and high school students, parents and grandparents, and everyone in between from all across the political spectrum who took a day to just come out to the streets, which a lot of them have never done ever before. As I'm recording this, some additional demonstrations are still ongoing in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Uh, and Netanyahu, for his part, uh, about an hour ago, already addressed the nation after what was, frankly, another unprecedented day in Israel. That word again, unprecedented. We keep using it and using it again and again in recent weeks. The prime minister addressed the nation, his nation, and basically compared all these law-abiding and patriotic citizens to extremist settlers who torched a Palestinian village in the West Bank earlier in the week. You heard that right. Bibi Netanyahu compared peaceful citizens who took to the streets to make their voices heard to extremists who tried to burn Palestinian families in their homes. Even for Netanyahu, this was a new low. There's apparently no shame left. Even worse, maybe, he still doesn't seem to have any intention of backing down. Despite the brewing violence in the streets, despite the very real and escalating violence in the West Bank, 
despite the looming economic collapse, despite the warnings from literally all over of an impending constitutional crisis, impending social collapse, and anarchy. Let's get to Nimrod Novik and Ibrahim Dalalsha. Hi, Nimrod. Hi, Ibrahim. Welcome back to the Israel Policy Pod. Hi, Ibrahim. Hi, Neri. Good to be here. Hello. How are you? <laughs> Thank you for joining us both. Uh, so, gentlemen, obviously a very difficult week in the West Bank over the past week. Uh, and once again, for our listeners' benefit, we're recording this on Wednesday evening. But a week ago exactly, we had a major IDF daytime operation into the old city of Nablus, targeting the Lion's Den group. 11 Palestinians were killed in that operation. Uh, Israel claims about seven or eight of them were militants, but an additional 100 people were injured in Nablus. We've also had rolling shooting attacks against Israelis in the West Bank in recent days, uh, with three Israelis killed, uh, including an American dual national. And after one such attack Sunday, uh, that very night we then had a pogrom, uh, there's no other word for it, I don't think, by hundreds of extremist settlers uh, into the Palestinian village of Huara, which is right outside Nablus, and they burned down and smashed shops and burned cars uh, and even homes with families in them, uh, burned all of this, all of it, uh, obviously amidst the backdrop of a very deadly start to this past year with 14 Israelis and over 60 Palestinians killed just in the past two months. And that, if that wasn't enough, all of that after, in general, the past year in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict being the deadliest in many years. So with that setting of the table, uh, I want to start with you, Nimrod. Uh, I want to get your preliminary thoughts and general impressions about where you think we find ourselves right now, uh, especially in terms of the West Bank. How concerned are you? Very much so. Um, I'm concerned both about the situation and about the analysis thereof. Um, what I hear on the Israeli side since uh, the events that you just enumerated is primarily tactical analysis. Uh, how could uh, Hawara have happened? How could it have been uh, avoided, uh, prevented? Uh, why wasn't the Shin Bet more alert? Uh, why wasn't the IDF there? Um, I find all that conversation uh, troubling. Uh, because we are in a situation that is far more demanding than a small measure here and a small measure there, uh, because um, several processes that uh, did not start with our current extremist government are reaching their logical conclusion uh, on its watch. Uh, and this government's policy already in the just two months uh, has already um, accelerated those processes, and 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 just to to in a bird's eye view of them, uh, one was the weakening uh, of the Palestinian Authority, uh, which is a process uh, that Israeli government successive Israeli governments have been investing heavily in, uh, depriving the Palestinian Authority of any ability to show that it can deliver anything for the population. Now. This does not absolve the Palestinian Authority of responsibility for its miserable state uh, because of uh, corruption and, 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 and nepotism and 
lack of legitimacy uh, with no elections uh, for so long, uh, and so on. Uh, but as the uh, strongest party by far, uh, Israel play, can hold a lot of cards that could have changed that dynamic. The second process is uh, uh, the growing extremism and inclination to violence among the Palestinian millennials, um, who now con- many of them consider uh, violence as the, as, the, as the illegitimate expression of their frustration with both the Israelis and the Palestinian Authority. And the third one is uh, settler violence, also not new, but they were never as emboldened as at the time when their leaders, representatives, are in the government and the coalition. The convergence of all three called for a major change in policy if we don't want to see uh, a major eruption. And just dealing with the tactics uh, of how to uh, address uh, one incident or another uh, is no good. That's a fair point. Ibrahim, what do you think? What are your uh, first general impressions of the past week and the past weeks? And uh, specifically to you, how from the Palestinian side was Hawara uh, covered, the pogrom there, and uh, what do you think is likely to be its lasting impact? Uh, <clears throat> actually, on, on, on the first note, uh, <clears throat> I agree with, uh, with Nimrod's um, analysis. Um, and I would actually express from this side of the um, of the green line um, <laughs> the fact that in the past, in the near past, you know, like many people were criticizing the PA for failure to deliver on security fronts, on domestic Palestinian issues, democracy, uh, and uh, good governance, uh, and so on. And I think, frankly, uh, the situation today. Uh, just you know, tells us that it it this is not the worst yet, uh, at all levels, oh. whether whether internal, uh, domestic Palestinians, and by the way, weakness on the internal Palestinian front reflects very negatively on the uh, you know the relations generally with Israel and particularly on the security situation, and the um, the 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 main I think uh, tragedy uh, is that. Uh, as uh, as old as I am, I've been uh, watched, uh, experienced, uh, and worked on, uh, you know, the first intifada situation, second intifada situation, and all the flare-ups in between, including this one that we're going through. Uh, and it seems to me that, uh, you know, no one uh, really wants to draw lessons from past experiences and basically take uh, effective and practical measures, uh, even in the absence of, a concrete solution to the conflict, there are many ways and measures that could actually be employed in order to prevent the deterioration that way. Uh, and, you know, that is not happening uh, for many uh, reasons. Maybe, you know, time is not, uh, you know, uh, on our side to discuss. But, you know, I think that uh, one it's one of the biggest strategies that we are witnessing yet again another sort of like um, you know, major uh, uh, deterioration towards violence and, and God forbid could actually be a full-fledged uh, clash at one point given all the uh, you know incidents that uh, that we're seeing a new Palestinian generation full of uh, uh, frustration uh, on domestic uh, issues but also in terms of the Israeli uh, Palestinian conflict and the never-ending occupation uh, settlers I think this is this was one of the predictions 
uh, you know, when the current Israeli coalition was formed, I mean, there were many people who were warning that settlers and settlers' youth uh, would actually take a different, uh, you know, feeling emboldened and covered by a government like this would even go beyond, uh, you know, the, uh, let's call them sporadic, uh, infrequent uh, uh, attacks that they used to have, leading to what we have seen in Hawara. Um so uh, although the writing is on the wall, everyone almost in terms of analysis understands that there are a lot, lots of things that need to, to, to take place and happen in order to preempt this kind of situation. No one really does anything about it. And at the mm-hmm. official levels, both sides, Israeli and Palestinian, and the situation continues to deteriorate. Uh, right, we'll, Hawara, we'll get into, sure. we'll get into uh, specific policies in a second. But yes, uh, your thoughts about Hawara, how, how did the Palestinian media and public... Uh, uh, watch and, and internalize what happened Sunday night? You know, I have to tell you that uh, I think that the uh, first thing that people uh, generally had in mind is the, uh, you know, a perception out there that this is not only angry settlers or a failure uh, 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 of the Israeli army and security forces to act. It's even more. It's like a systematic program kind of attack uh, by very senior Israeli ministers, uh, you know, Ben-Gvir and, and others who actually emboldened, and even publicly, uh, they would never, you know, they would, in fact, encourage, uh, you know, settlers to, to do this kind of uh, attacks against Palestinians. Uh, so that's impression one. Impression two, it, it, you know, like or a perception out there is that, you know, this reminded people of the 1948, uh, you know, sort of like... Uh, uh, hostilities between Jews and Arabs at the time and Palestinians at the time. Uh, so in their minds, this was yet another, uh, you know, it, it, you, you can imagine it just takes uh, back a, a Palestinian generation of today, you know, back 70 years to think in terms of existential war with Israel. You can imagine how how horrific this is. In my, in my own observation as a Palestinian observer, two-stater, you know, uh, believe in coexistence and peace, I watch you know, kids who actually talk about this situation as like reminiscent of, of 1948. To me, it's a scary perception, uh, even if people take it lightly um, and fault it. But the problem is that perceptions are too powerful and strong, especially when they get to a younger generation like this. You know, and there are many other, of course, uh, you know, dynamics to it. But, but uh, I think, you know, those two points are like, uh, you know, very worrying in my, uh, my opinion. And, uh, you know, you can see that uh, uh, nothing has been done yet uh, from the side of the Israeli government officially to create a counter, you know, perception out there or a narrative that actually says we're taking this very seriously. Uh, You know, there there were voices from the military establishment in Israel basically, you know, uh, taking responsibility for a failure. But there hasn't been any anything to tell the Palestinian public, oh, wait, you know, like the Israeli government is taking this seriously and nothing as such would repeat course. So, you know, people are still agitated. Now, you know, one of the immediate, and this is like my last sentence on this topic, but, but you know, one of the things that are happening is that there are serious attempts uh, to try and resurrect, you know, what is called, you know, local or popular protection committees, which is, which in my opinion, uh, you know, would come to be, to being as an, a parallel structure to PA security forces who are unable to deliver or protect people. And it creates another, you know, sort of like structure that you need to worry about when it comes to clashes or possible clashes with settlers. It just makes the situation worse, in other words. Right. Um, 
And and yes, uh, we did hear some voices from the IDF, uh, the head of IDF Central Command, coming out and calling what happened in Hawara Sunday night uh, act of terrorism and a pogrom, uh, but not too many uh, comments from current Israeli officials, uh, quite the opposite. We had uh, the finance minister, Betzel Smotrich, uh, earlier today uh, in public remarks at a conference say that the village of Hawara should be wiped out uh, and that it's... Uh, the, the state should do it and not public people, uh, not individual people. That was his only caveat. Uh, so very, very scary stuff. Um, let's get into the actual policies uh, on both sides. Nimrod, I want to start with you and pick up uh, something that you alluded to, which was this current extreme far-right Israeli government. Uh, in terms of actual policy on the ground, are there any prospects for this government uh, to actually de-escalate? given the internal dynamics that we all know, uh, you know, ministers competing with each other to be, I guess, more hardline and more right-wing vis-a-vis Palestinian terrorism. Uh, also, obviously, we saw Smotrich's comments today. Uh, what do you think in terms of actual Israeli government policy? Look, uh, the original sin <clears throat> was enshrined uh, in the government guidelines which is the top document that navigates government policy and is agreed to by all members of the coalition. And uh, that document states very clearly that Jews alone have the right to sovereignty between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Um, if we needed you know, the last straw on uh, the Palestinian authorities' claim uh, to be the vehicle with which Palestinians will one day reach statehood, then even that was uh, taken away from day one of this coalition. Since then, what we've seen, and I think we discussed it before, or you discussed it before with others uh, on this platform, uh, we have seen uh, the two most extreme elements in the coalition, in the government. Uh, the Minister of Finance, who is also uh, has a ministry in the ministry of Def- a minister in the ministry of defense, and uh, and the minister of so-called national security, uh, Smartrich and Ben Greer, respectively, uh, getting chunk of authority over what's going on in the West Bank. So now we have three ministers calling the shots on the West Bank. The minister of defense, of course, who is the boss uh, of the commander of central command, who by international law. Uh, is the authority, uh, and the Minister of uh, Finance, um, who, who's, who's a, a, a lead uh, annexationist, uh, and the Minister of uh, National Security, who is the uh, uh, provocateur-in-chief in this country uh, in terms of Jewish supremacy uh, on both sides of the, of the Green Line. Um, they, um, they struggle for authority, the turf, struggle between amongst them uh, is not yet over. Uh, some decisions have been made, some documents have been signed, uh, but when the time comes for practical implementation, uh, I think we're going to see a mess uh, whereby different ministers will issue different policy guidelines uh, to, uh, to those who are supposed to act on their behalf uh, in the territories. Um, so no, I don't see this coalition, getting its act together in terms of changing course, internalizing 
the amount of detonators that are spread all over the West Bank and Jerusalem in Gaza uh, and drawing the right conclusion in terms of, uh, of uh, changing course. As a matter of fact, uh, for Smartrich and, and, and Ben Gvir, whose ultimate objective is to do away with the Palestinian Authority, uh, to remove any uh, barrier to eventual complete annexation, uh, any such thought of changing course uh, is sacrilegious. Yeah, um, it very much is. Uh, and it's also uh, a political reality here right now in Israel that this current far-right government spent the past year and a half uh, blasting the previous government of Natalia Bennett and Yair Lapid for being soft on terror, for being weak leftists, for being uh, in bed with an Arab-Israeli political party as part of the coalition. Uh, and now they're under massive, massive pressure uh, publicly and especially from its own base to actually uh, deliver some kind of security. But uh, all the while on the ground, um, we're seeing the exact opposite. So uh, they, they're also feeling the pressure uh, due to their own uh, kind of lofty promises, which were never quite realistic in terms of you know squashing uh, violence and squashing terrorism. Uh, Ibrahim. But you know, you, the- you, have, you, you, you have to take into consideration that they are sincerely driven by the notion that what you cannot accomplish by force can be accomplished by more force. <laughs> yes. That it's only that it's only the the weak uh, military officers that are actually holding back complete victory, uh, which is uh, quite right. quite nonsense. Um, Ibrahim, what about the uh, the actual policies from the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian leadership? Um, it struck me, and maybe fill us in on what actually happened there. That the same night that we had the the violence and the uh, the rampage by settlers through Hawara, uh, that same evening you had. Uh, Palestinians trying to get to Joseph's tomb uh, on the outskirts of Nablus uh, to try to, I suppose, damage it or torch uh, this this shrine. Uh, and they were held off reportedly, and according to videos that we saw, by Palestinian Authority security forces. So on the one hand, we had the IDF uh, in Hawara unable to hold back uh, the the settlers coming down from the hilltops, and yet a few kilometers, not even Away from there, you had still the Palestinian Authority actually holding off uh, potential rioters. Um, so, what are we seeing from the Palestinian Authority side, and and are uh, are reports of uh, the Palestinian Authority's uh, collapse or demise maybe a bit premature? Does it still have some some grip over what's happening on the ground? To your mind? Yes, um, I think first of all, uh, what is preventing uh, you know this whole situation from really exploding into uh, a second intifada kind of scenario is the fact that the Palestinians, you know, authority on two tracks are holding back and applying brakes to the much you know to the to the extent possible. Uh, one is that the you know there is no uh, mobilization of Fatah mainstream. Uh, uh, to uh, carry out attacks or organize, uh, you know, sort of like violent activities uh, against uh, Israel or Israeli, you know, whether forces or settlers. Uh, And that, you know, this is not a secret. It's, you know, like, again, I think for people, veteran people who have witnessed ups and downs of the Israeli-Palestinian sort of like, you know, uh, relations and security situation would understand that if this situation, you know, like slides into uh, a full-fledged uh, sort of like, you know, confrontation, it, you know, the whole map will, will look different. And then 
uh, more force will actually be met with more violence, with more bloodshed, uh, and it would take us to one of those, you know, like one yet another vicious cycle of uh, of violence. And because this is not, you know, the case, because the Palestinian Authority and Fatah mainstream are continuing to hold back, despite and against all the odds and all the problems, um, <clears throat> you know, we're, we're not yet there. And I hope that we would we wouldn't really reach. To a situation where there is a collapse of the system, collapse of the Israeli-Palestinian security coordination in total, which would also lead to that kind of uh, scenario. On the, on the, you know, having said that, you know, I think that the Palestinian Authority is increasingly weakened in terms of its ability to uh, use uh, force uh, internally in order to stop and curb violence. There, uh, there are, and there are different reasons for it. One of it, for example. You know, attending Aqaba summit was like a decision taken by President Abbas and a few of his advisors. Not only Hamas and Islamic Jihad are against it. In fact, many in Fatah are against that decision. And many of the smaller PLO factions who are important in terms of their, you know, um, it's a coalition like, uh, you know, on the side of President Abbas and, and, and Fatah and the PLO executive committee. So even those are against it. And basically you have a situation where the only voice, the only one who actually is uh, supportive of maintaining, you know, a level of political dialogue uh, or a dialogue, you know, like with Israel uh, under regional and international sponsorship is is the mainstream Palestinian Authority itself. So, you know, we're not talking about the collapse yet of the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority has physical force. And as you correctly pointed out, during the time that the uh, you know the, the 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 terrorist attacks were basically carried out against Hawara uh, residents, uh, innocent, defenseless people in their homes, um, you know, by hundreds and hundreds of settlers out there, you know, the the Palestinian Authority was protecting, uh, you know, dispersing and using tear gas even, uh, you know, the the youth who were trying to um, vandalize Joseph's tomb inside Nablus uh, city near Balata camp, which is quite a risky. Uh, thing to do for them because uh, because of the general like, yeah it's incredible because, exactly because of the general public sentiment and the anger and the frustration out there and the rea- and it came actually in reaction to the settlers' violence in Hawara. But again, you know, I I, I wouldn't really uh, cash much on the fact that the Palestinian Authority can do everything by force in order to stop you know all these kind of incidents. You know, like it's not it's not you know like they the PA is on the verge of uh, if they do more of these kind of activities, of a major clash, not only with a handful of youth here and there, but essentially with the Palestinian public who is disgruntled, angry, frustrated, no political horizon, you know, economic and financial you know, difficulties, domestic Palestinian problems and governance problems. I mean, it's a whole set of a very complex situation. Uh, so I wouldn't really cash and, and demand of the Palestinian Authority to use force, because if they do that, you know, essentially we are talking about a much higher level of violence that would be automatically dragged into, a, a, you know, a, a confrontation with the Israelis. The proximity, as we have seen, uh, of Israeli and Palestinian, Israeli settlers and Palestinians in the West Bank is a major source of friction on a daily basis, hourly basis. It's not you know, we're not talking about, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, it's not logistically, if you will, difficult to go and out and attack a Palestinian village. And it's not difficult logistically, if you will, 
you know, it's a, it's a matter at will when someone wants to, you know, carry out a violent attack and it goes both ways. So the situation is so fra- fragile and it requires, you know, uh, deeper uh, sort of like root solutions uh, rather than using more, for- more force and more violence. But this is where the PA officially in terms of its policy stands. And I feel like, you know, they're losing, you know, if you like soft power and leverage, uh, not only on the general public that is disgruntled, but also on their you know, uh, uh, coalition members, if you will, you know, the, the smaller factions who are, you know, with them uh, uh, in the same uh, boat uh, versus Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Right, right, right. Um, a nearly impossible political position for the Palestinian Authority to be in. Uh, on the one hand, trying to maintain security coordination with Israel and uh, maintain some semblance of stability, uh, while on the other hand, uh, there's no real political horizon or, or real political reason or diplomatic reason for them to actually be doing this, uh, given the the negative trend lines and the negative realities on the ground. Uh, and that's where they find themselves in, in opposition to, uh, like you said, their, their own public sentiment. Um, in terms of solutions, uh, you, you mentioned this earlier, uh, there was a diplomatic summit in Aqaba, a port city in Jordan, uh, on Sunday as well, uh, before things, uh, went off the rails in Hawara. Um, Israeli and Palestinian officials uh, were brought together under American and Jordanian and Egyptian auspices to try and de-escalate things uh, diplomatically and through dialogue. Uh, the agreements reached at Aqaba didn't quite last even a few hours until uh, that initial terror attack in Hawara and then the uh, settler terror attacks and pogroms later on the evening. And yet, nevertheless, uh, Ibrahim, let's get your thoughts. Do you think there was some value in Aqaba? Uh, do you think there's any role for the Biden administration or even the Arab states to play here uh, in terms of de-escalation? Or do you think uh, everyone, including including us, uh, are being led by ground-level realities and the internal politics uh, on both sides? Do you think there's any hope for, for an impact, a positive impact? You know, it's always good to have international U.S. and, and regional uh, uh, support <clears throat> and push for peace and de-escalation uh, between Israelis and Palestinians. We've seen this, uh, you know, many many times before. Uh, but the truth uh, is, uh, I'm one of those, you know, the strong believers that if Palestinians and Israelis don't really get it uh, on track, uh, none of the uh, forces can actually do it uh, on our behalf or, like, you know, for us. Um, in my opinion, the meeting that was more important than Aqaba was actually, uh, you know, a, a meeting, an encounter between Hanigbi, uh, Hassan uh, Sheikh, and other Palestinian officials a week before. Uh, there were <clears throat> discussions uh, that I think were uh, constructive uh, discussions, uh, understanding of uh, both sides, uh, sort of like uh, uh, problems and challenges. Uh, and how to actually move forward from there, how to strengthen the Palestinian Authority on certain, you know, economic, financial, security, and other tracks. Um, and, and there was, you know, I'm one of those people who was encouraged, uh, uh, I would say, a bit uh, by the fact that there, there is a Palestinian-Israeli uh, dialogue uh, and, and communications on, on such an important issue that has to do with saving lives. We're not really here talking about two-state solution. Uh, yes, and I admit, and this is not, you know, ideal, but, you know, at least talking about how to prevent the deterioration is a very important step. However, you know, I think 
you know, what happened, you know, after. I'm, I'm hearing, not yet confirmed, but I'm hearing that there were negative messages that were passed in the past two days, yesterday and today, basically saying that, you know, more or less the understandings, understandings are not holding for domestic, you know, uh, issues and problems uh, in Israel, you know, in the Israeli coalition. And therefore, you know, it's not going to happen in the uh, coming two weeks, which even puts the, uh, you know, the whole follow-up summit or conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, uh, March 17, in, in a big question mark. Um, now, regardless whether this is true or not, I, you know, like, again, it's still, you know, verifying this. But basically, I think, if we do not really get <clears throat> a bilateral process on both sides to de-escalate, uh, I think that the situation is fragile enough and it will continue to escalate, uh, regardless of good intentions of international and regional uh, you know, players. Because again, you need concrete things to happen, and the only sides that can actually do this are the Israelis and the Palestinians, with all the difficulties. And the problem is, the way, you know, I think uh, I see it, and I'm not, you know, like blaming, this is not a blame game, but Israel being the strongest uh, party in this equation, there are certain things that need to be delivered, uh, you know, in order to encourage and help the, strengthen the Palestinian Authority to take more action on its side in order to prevent, you know, uh, uh, with, the, with the further attacks or like, uh, you know, frictions. We're going into Ramadan. And one of the things that, one of the things, I mean, you know, people may spec, you know, like may check in, you know, like coinciding with convergence of Ramadan and, and, and Pesach and, and all those religious sentiments coming out there, you know, going to uh, the Haram Sharif Temple Mount, uh, you know, for, for Jews is going to create a situation where uh, emotions will be too, you know, very high. And as such, you know, friction is, and prospects of friction and violence uh, are higher. And then, you know, like we, we, lo- we lose that. If we, do, if we don't, take, you know, the, the governments on both sides, do not take preemptive steps, concrete measures to, 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 to prevent that and only talk about it without actually reaching conclusions, I, I think that, frankly, these meetings are going to be just a waste of time. Uh, the reality on the ground is harsh and it requires action. And if we take a manipulative approach and blame game on it, we can do that, but the end result of it is that the situation will, you know, escalate further. Right. Uh, we'll be right back after this brief message. Are you trying to keep up with the Israeli government's ongoing judicial overhaul? Check out our new judicial legislation tracker, which tracks the progress of each proposed bill, as well as other judicial resources, including translated videos and statements. To explore more of our work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, U.S.-Israel relations, Israeli politics, Israeli-Arab regional integration, and the future of two states, read our timely written explainers unpacking critical issues, explore our 50 steps before the deal policy resource, or join one of our live video briefings featuring top journalists from the region. Links to all of these resources can be found in the description of this podcast. If you rely on Israel Policy Forum for credible, informational, and thoughtful analysis, please make a gift today to ensure that Israel Policy Forum's work continues to have an impact. Donate now at israelpolicyforum.org support. Nimrod, let's bring you in. What did you make of, of Aqaba? And do you think, like I asked uh, Ibrahim, you know, is there a role for the Americans and the Arab states to play, uh, especially ahead of Ramadan in just a few weeks towards the end of March? Yes, uh, <clears throat> I think that the Aqaba, the Aqaba meeting was significant in its insignificance. Okay, I like that. Um, uh, there was a major effort 
uh, to bring the parties together. Um, and who else but the U.S. Uh, orchestrating? And Egypt and Jordan, which are the main uh, critical neighbors of Israel. Um, and there were agreements reached. Um, and uh, and I take issue with you, Neri. Uh, those agreements have not been uh, breached because nobody because those who agreed agreed to nothing. And let me be specific. Uh, Israel agreed, uh, and they, these were the important agreements. Uh, Israel agreed to not discuss new housing units in the West Bank for the next four months and not discuss uh, legalizing illegal outposts, new ones, uh, in the next six months. However, all that happened after two weeks earlier, Israel took two unprecedented decisions. One is approving of close to 10,000 housing units in the West Bank, and those are exempted from the agreement. Never before uh, did Israel take a decision of such a magnitude of 10,000 housing units in, in one decision, uh, and those are exempted from the uh, uh, agreement in, uh, in, in uh, Aqaba because they were taken before uh, the meeting took place. And the same goes for the legalizing of nine illegal outposts. Um, never before did Israel do that. Uh, it's, this one is not just against international law. It's also against Israel. Um, uh, and, and therefore, um, Israel still um, lives up to the commitment of not discussing new ones beyond those that had been uh, agreed upon. Same goes for the Palestinian Authority uh, that undertook uh, to withdraw from the UN uh, Security Council uh, its uh, request for a, a resolution on the issue. Uh, but there's no, commit, no time limit on, on that. And therefore, it can. Uh, resubmitted uh, at will without violating the agreement. What, what I'm trying to say is that Aqaba is a symptom of the limited effort invested by both the U.S. and the regionals in trying to change dynamics between uh, Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, from the regionals, what we do here, and that's but until now conveyed privately, uh, and uh, perhaps one day they will go public, which will have greater impact, is telling the Israeli government uh, on the eve of uh, what Ibrahim just mentioned, uh, Ramadan, uh, the conversions with the Pesach, and a couple of weeks later, uh, the Jerusalem Day, which is another flashpoint, um, telling them, watch it, look, uh, you're a sovereign country, you can do whatever you want, uh, but it's becoming very, very difficult for us to defend normalization and to proceed with normalization as we wish um, when things are happening in Jerusalem, Temple Mount, Ram Sharif, West Bank, Gaza. Um, please factor us in. So that's about the region. About the U.S., um, well, as an analyst, uh, I can understand. American plate is loaded with far more important and urgent matters. Uh, as an Israeli patriot, I'm deeply worried and disappointment, disappointed because the U.S. can do a lot more uh, in order to affect uh, Israeli conduct and Palestinian conduct as well. 
but there is just no will there. I will just call your attention. There is a, a, a wonderful piece by uh, Ben Samuels in today's Haaretz, where he presents a, a menu of eight dishes of what the U.S. can do in order to affect uh, Israeli policies. And there's a lot more. Uh, but uh, right now, uh, the attitude as viewed from this vantage point, and maybe I'm wrong, uh, is uh, we're too busy. Uh, once in a while, when uh, fire breaks out, we'll send a firefighter, uh, be it the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, the uh, or uh, Ambassador Leaf, uh, but otherwise leave us alone. Yeah, uh, it's understandable from the U.S. perspective, uh, but it doesn't quite help matters uh, here on the ground. And if things truly explode here and go off the rails, then the Biden administration will have to deal with it and wade in and de-escalate. Um, Nimrod, I like the fact that you... Uh, yeah, I, I just, if, if, before you do, um, I think that nobody uh, better than the Biden administration uh, understand the analogy of uh, if you don't uh, uh, buy effective, timely medicine, you'll deal with the pandemic. Yes, yes, yes. Um, it's true. And uh, Nimrod, I also liked uh, what you said at the top that uh, how can how can we break the agreements when we never even actually promised anything? Uh, which may not be necessarily true in terms of the Israeli delegation to Aqaba, but but it is true that uh, I think within an hour or two after the agreements were began being reported or made public, uh, you had uh, Smotrich and then Ben Gvir and then even National Security Advisor Tzachi Negbi, and then finally Prime Minister Netanyahu come out and say, no, no, we never agreed to even even the minimum that we agreed to in Aqaba, whether in terms of no, no, no I'm sorry, Neri, no. Yeah. Yep. People were playing with words, especially on the Israeli side. Um, they said that they never agreed to freeze settlement construction. And that is true. Because what they agreed to is not to take new decisions on but, future housing unit or future uh, legalization. No, that I, that I agree with. But then I think even that commitment was too much for Smotrich and Ben Gvir. And then you had Hanegbi and Netanyahu kind of reacting to to the right-wing pressure. Uh, but to my mind, the more important issue in Aqaba in terms of Israeli commitments weren't new kind of housing announcements. It was uh, IDF incursions and raids into Area A, which uh, was, I think, the real part of de-escalation on the ground in the West Bank. And uh, even that was unclear whether Israel had actually made a commitment to uh, to lessen those raids. Uh, I'm, I'm still skeptical whether they they could actually fulfill that commitment. Yeah, let me comment on this. Uh, look, um, nobody uh, did a, a better job in, uh, in trying to, to um, address this issue uh, than the U.S. Security Coordinator, uh, Lieutenant General Fenzo. Yep. Um, he, he's talking to both sides, and he heard that both sides are right, are correct. Israelis are saying, we cannot reduce incursions uh, as long as the PA uh, doesn't uh, exercise control. The PA is saying um, we cannot exercise control. We cannot, as Ibrahim explained very clearly, we cannot go in there um, when we are viewed as subcontractor of the Israeli occupation rather than uh, representing the senior national. 
So he came up with a plan that nobody, I mean, nobody outside uh, of uh, officialdom uh, has seen, uh, but he's supposed to uh, create some kind of a cooling off period whereby there's a little bit of this and a little bit of that, uh, where Palestinian elite forces are used and Israelis reduce uh, a little bit uh, incursions and, and somehow to synchronize that. Uh, and from what I gather, and I'm not sure that, that I'm right, is that the next benchmark uh, was agreed upon, and, and they're going to convene in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt uh, on the 17th of March in order to discuss implementation of that. Okay. Not implementation, sorry. To, to, to get the consent of the parties to the plan, and then talk implementation. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll believe it when I see it, especially uh, a week ago you had the major IDF raid into the old city of Nablus uh, in the middle of the morning uh, to go after three lines down militants. Uh, so I don't know what the cost-benefit analysis Correct. was in terms of uh, cooling off periods and, uh, and essentially uh, launching a major operation into the heart of Nablus. Ibrahim, uh, what do you think about this issue of uh, curbing Israeli military raids into Palestinian towns and cities and uh, allowing the Palestinian Authority maybe more, I guess, legitimacy or political space to deploy its own security forces. Do you think there's uh, there's hope for this uh, for this scheme? I, I think theoretically there is. It makes uh, a lot of sense. And the challenge, the real challenge, is that you actually, when you put this uh, sort of like plan uh, into implementation, you have to expect uh, you know the other players uh, out there uh, for good or bad. Uh, from their perspective, that is the time where they need to escalate more violence and carry out and initiate more attacks. So, you know, under the current dynamics, the way I see it, like if there are, you know, uh, more attacks, there will be a continuation of Israeli military raids into Palestinian towns disregarding the role of the Palestinian Authority. You know, I think that we will remain in a closed, uh, you know, sort of like a vicious uh, circle. Um, you know, the... the uh, I'm not, you know, uh, going to repeat like past experiences, but I have to tell you that, you know, the Palestinian Authority security forces are not uh, 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 are not going to uh, carry out attacks similar to what the IDF uh, does. It's a different dynamic altogether. You know, cooptation, pre you know, pre uh, preemption, arrest, detention, uh, and other measures that the Palestinian Authority has been doing. They have been doing them already. And that, I think, you know, can be increased. But, you know, there should be no expectation that there will be major security crackdowns uh, by the Palestinian security forces taking over refugee camps, taking over villages and towns. That's not, you know, what the Palestinian uh, Authority is equipped uh, to do and cannot really do that. Because, again, the, you know, any, any um, uh, uh, scenario like this or planning like this or execution of a plan like this would put the Palestinian Authority in a direct confrontation with the public and it would take things, I think, even to a worse level of violence, including vis-a-vis -vis Israelis. I think basically what what the uh, uh, what, what the plausible uh, um, and again, I would actually repeat uh, what I said earlier, I think that the fact that there was a dialogue between Israeli and Palestinian officials at one point where there was a whole package of confidence building measures in addition to a security a track is the way to move forward. And in the absence of that, I think that, you know, thinking only on a security track is going to be disappointing. Um, 
I know almost for a fact that the Palestinian Authority are, 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 are you know, have rejected the, you know, the security concept only uh, in very clear uh, manner, and they did not really create illusions that they were, you know, like they would do that. The question of stopping Israeli incursions, as you mentioned earlier, and I, you know, I actually say this. What if we have another attack in the coming two days? What what is going to happen? Whether the Israeli army will will just wait until you know, like the PA does anything about it in the current political dynamics? I don't think that they will, and therefore you will see the IDF coming back again. So you know, the notion theoretically is there, but in practice, you need you know, frankly, courageous leaderships on both sides to take what it takes in order to actually put the you know uh, this back on track. And I don't really see that this is actually the case because, you know, there were promises to the Palestinian Authority that there would be a reduction, but not a cessation of Israeli army incursions into Palestinian towns. And in tandem, the PA would have to do more. Um, you know, again, attacks that are carried out by opposition groups, in my opinion, whether it's individual or others, but basically attacks like these bring in the Israeli army uh, into the Palestinian towns, and as such, the plan is sabotaged. You, you see what I'm saying? It's like we are in a circle, and no one is yeah. actually taking what it takes in order to uh, uh, fix, uh, you know, uh, the problem and book it, uh, and put it back on track. And people, when they think about, uh, you know, cooperation on the Palestinian-Israeli side, they tend to, uh, you know, maybe underestimate uh, um, the fact that there are players out there who ha- who are also watching this. And they mean to to carry out you know attacks like this in order to sabotage these plans, and they succeed. You know, it's it's a triangle almost. It's not just Israeli right. Palestinian. Right. I mean, it's not like Israeli Palestinian in the sense of like PA versus uh, IDF uh, uh, or PA security forces versus IDF. There are also other players right. out there. And I'm not going to mention or liken so that people are not upset. But again, I think that incidents or attacks by settlers, the way that it was done. Uh, in Hawara and frequent other attacks, individual attacks that are underreported, in my opinion, uh, are, are basically also adding uh, lots of complexities to a situation and a security plan like this. All true. It's all true. Uh, and we don't have to really stretch our imaginations to think that, uh, for for instance, that one gunman uh, in Hawara uh, from Sunday that shot dead uh, two Israelis on the main road through, through Hawara uh, what happens if Israeli intelligence finds that uh, individual in the heart of Nablus? Uh, will the Israeli army refrain from going in like it did last week? Um, I find it very hard to believe. Uh, and then rinse and, and repeat. I think that we are portraying it a little bit in a, in a one or zero kind of uh, formula. Uh, there are more nuances and there is room for less Israeli incursions. Uh, and you just mentioned Neria rightfully whether the decision uh, to go into uh, Nablus uh, with that particular operation in the middle of the day uh, and uh, and conducting it the way it was conducted, given the circumstances that it was not a ticking bomb, but it was pursuit of somebody, um, uh, there, are dis- there, are, there are ways of reducing Israeli incursions uh, without taking the... the, the without uh, 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 abandoning responsibility for uh, security of Israelis. Um, so there is a, a distinction. And, and one of the things is uh, at what level uh, decisions like this are made um, and how careful uh, the circumstances are weighed. Um, there is room for improvement. 
which doesn't say that Ibrahim is not wrong. And, and, and both Israeli settlers and, and Palestinian uh, extremists are going to do everything in their power to prevent that from succeeding. I just wanted to comment and basically, uh, uh, you know, confirm what, uh, what Nimrod uh, just said and explain or clarify what I meant. One is that, yes, there are ways, and as I said, like, you know, I was encouraged uh, uh, beat uh, sort of like uh, temporarily by the uh, Palestinian-Israeli meeting last week, the, you know, one week before Aqaba, because there was talk about bilateral measures and, you know, like go, going in tandem in terms of steps that could actually de-escalate the situation. But, you know, the way I see it is that, and, and yes, Nimrod is right, there are ways to actually reduce to a minimum almost, you know, sort of like IDF incursions and as such allow the Palestinian Authority to take over its role and mandate over Area A um, and prevent attacks in, a, in, in, in an effective, in a more effective way because they're already doing it, but, you know, like, you know, doing even more in order to ensure, you know, that there are less and less attacks. Uh, the I think at one point the sense here on the Palestinian side is that if this was left purely to uh, field commanders to do in addition to or parallel to a bilateral process of, you know, confidence building measures, then we can actually get there. And the sense here is that someone up there is actually obstructing the process and then leaving the field uh, on the ground to extremists on both sides. And not only the field, but in, on the Israeli, in the Israeli case, it's even senior you know, uh, ministers and officials who are basically doing what it takes in order to obstruct any understandings like this with declared intention of causing the collapse of the PA and so on and so forth. So, you know, that's also another, you know, it's not that the Israeli authorities and the Palestinian authorities are failing to deliver on this. It's that they're not empowered to do it by other levels or higher levels of the Israeli government. That's the sense on the Palestinian side, whether it's true or not. You know, I leave it more to the, you know, to experts on Israeli internal politics. But essentially, you know, I think there is Palestinian willingness to do that. And they need, you know, um, a package of uh, confidence building measures that go beyond just the security aspect of it for this situation to be to to improve and for, you know, for the escalation to take place in an effective means. But it's not happening. Not yet, at least. You know, let's put it there. Right, right. Um, We'll have to wait and see uh, if uh, cooler heads prevail on both sides. Um, Gentlemen, final question uh, before we wrap up, maybe more on a personal note, but still analytical. Uh, You're both a bit older than me, uh, more experienced, uh, some would say a bit wiser, but you've been doing this definitely for a lot longer than I have, uh, and I've been doing this a fair amount of time. But my question to you both, uh, and we'll start with you, Nimrod, is that looking back at the Second Intifada in the early 2000s and even the First Intifada in the late 80s, is when did you personally know uh, back then that we were in a new phase or that we were looking at something uh, completely new on the ground? Uh, was it a specific event or a series of events? Or uh, did you only know in retrospect that we were uh, in the midst of an Intifada? So Nimrod, uh, let's start with you. What did you, looking back at those time periods? Here is a confession. Uh, when the first Intifada broke out in 87, 88, um, I was um, in the prime minister's office as a senior advisor uh, to uh, Prime Minister Paris. Uh, and here is the confession. I didn't get it. 
Um, I uh, was, uh, I was, my, my thinking was influenced uh, by uh, uh, intelligence analysis that, that I saw on a daily basis. Uh, and our intelligence community didn't get it. Um, I, I don't blame them. I mean, there was no precedent, and therefore, uh, to connect the dots between one event here and another event there, and and then they become more and more frequent, and then it becomes more and more massive. Um, it, it took a while. So yes, it was only in retrospect uh, that that we got it. Uh, the second intifada was unfortunately easier to identify uh, because with bus uh, exploding. Uh, everywhere in the country, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, Haifa, and elsewhere, uh, it was uh, the, the, the devastating effect of each event uh, was a message. Um, and, and I take a lesson from the two uh, to today. Um, the first intifada, as you as you noted, was very very different from the second. And there's little doubt that the third um, does will not look anything like the first and the second. Uh, I think that uh, our analysts here in Israel are far too attached to dictionary definition of what is an intifada. And therefore, if factor number three uh, doesn't happen, then it's not an intifada. And I'm saying factor number three because most of them say until the uh, Palestinian security forces, as such, by order, are not joining uh, the violence, it's not an intifada. I think this is an artificial definition. Uh, I think we should use a much more loose definition. Uh, I tend to uh, like, uh, not to like, but to accept uh, Tom Friedman's uh, recent uh, uh, coin uh, that there are three intifadas uh, going on now simultaneously. Settlers' intifada, Palestinian intifada, and Israeli domestic intifada. So none of them is really an intifada in terms of the official definition, uh, but the convergence um, of, of these trends uh, is 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 uh, is quite uh, okay. Uh, some would argue that the uh, what looks like uh, the most like an intifada is the actual domestic revolt here in Israel uh, against the uh, Netanyahu government's judicial overhaul. Uh, but we'll leave that for a different pod. Ibrahim, uh, how about you? Looking back at the First and second intifadas. No, I actually agree with uh, with number. It's a matter of definition. But if you uh, you know like take first of all, I think the first intifada uh, was unique, uh, nothing like compared to the second intifada, by different standards. Uh, whether it be with the fact that there was no Palestinian authority and as such no Palestinian security services, or uh, you know there was like an immediate direct Israeli occupation and it was people revolting, organized in True. you know in different ways and different factions had a major role to play uh, in it. The second intifada was more about the disintegration and collapse of the Israeli-Palestinian security agreements. Uh, it pulled in. Um, the Palestinian security forces not only to refrain from preventing attacks, but in fact, you know, got them to be in a direct and immediate clash with the Israeli forces, whether in PA towns or even outside it. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it was a massive scale of violence uh, that, uh, you know, we're talking about F-16s shelling and bombing Palestinian security forces installations, uh, kind of scenario and buses blowing up, you know, like all, all over Israel. So it, it has its its different sort of like uh, 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 standards, uh, uh, and, and I wouldn't really compare the current situation to it. However, having said that, you know we should not underestimate the fact that you know we are talking about a very serious deterioration 
Um, and yes, you know, I can understand people calling it intifada, intifada of attrition, intifada, you know, like there are uh, groups that are basically stand behind, you know, mobilizing, uh, supporting, uh, uh, inciting. Uh, it's not yet the mainstream. There is no collapse of the Palestinian Authority or a clash with the Israeli forces. All that is true, but it doesn't mean that, you know, like the term uh, intifada uh, itself does not apply. Uh, you know, like we have a sustained effort. Uh, of uh, causing more and more, uh, of carrying out more and more attacks. The security situation is not stable. Um, and the, uh, you know, the question of definition or standards that you apply, comparing it to the second and first intifadas, uh, you know, obviously we're not at that level of violence yet. But if the situation continues as is, we could actually slide into it. Um, and that's, I think, what is, uh, you know, what, what is more, what is serious about this uh, current situation is that Violence tends to be a spiral, sort of like uh, um, a dynamic that could actually um, lead eventually to um, to a collapse. If not a total collapse, then a partial collapse uh, of the Palestinian security uh, forces and momentum to actually stop and prevent attacks. Uh, you know, the hope remains that, you know, voice of reason, um, and I know that there are like, uh, you know, like there are powers of forces out there who are trying to you know, make the situation worse. There are, you know, uh, uh, powers, uh, regional, international, and within uh, the Israeli system uh, who are actually trying to prevent this. And definitely the Palestinian Authority is, uh, you know, uh, mainstream at least, are still uh, a partner to uh, such efforts. If, you know, the question if, uh, you know, they prevail or not. Um, so that, you know, like I think that I would actually uh, try and end on a happy note. Uh, rather than, you know, uh, just reiterate how bad the situation is, because obviously everyone uh, is sensing and experiencing and seeing this on a daily basis in, in the past weeks and months. We love uh, more hopeful and optimistic notes on the podcast. Uh, not enough of that, uh, especially in recent months. Um, and uh, we'll have to wait and see. Hopefully uh, uh, the more responsible and level-headed and saner officials on both sides uh, win out. Uh, and with that, uh, inshallah. 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 Uh, Nimrod Ibrahim, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us and uh, sharing your insights. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you, Neri. Bye. Okay. Thanks again to the great Nimrod Novik and Ibrahim Delalshe for their generous time, as always. Also, a special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, who, according to Knowing Sources, just got engaged in the most spectacular fashion. So a big mazel tov to Jacob. And also special thanks, of course, to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening.